Philo podcast. This week we are doing a free Relin episode. I'm Annie. I'm Frankie. And I'm Jessie. So this week we are back just having a free conversation about plenty of things after our three episode series on the theme, I do not dream of labor. So in our last series, we discussed office space, Harlan County, USA, and modern times. I picked this because I was just feeling a little stifled in work at the end of summer and didn't realize just how relevant our discussions would become again, especially for the film industry in the month when we would actually be recording. Yeah. So I think we were all really surprised to see that, especially as it was unfolding while we were publishing and releasing those episodes. And we've been really looking forward to talking a little bit uh, today in the free reeling episode and addressing the news and what's been going on in Hollywood with unions and a possible strike. Yeah. And This week, it culminated in a tragic death on set, on the movie set, Rust, in New Mexico, in the United States, which was really shocking and implicates a lot of really poor conditions on set, um, the crew. You've probably heard about this in the news. A lot of things are focusing on Alec Baldwin, but the the real story is about, like, production conditions and what's really been going on. And everything that the union has been publicizing in the last month uh, on social media, which are the extreme conditions and like unacceptable working conditions for production crews. So the International Association of Theatrical and Stage Employees, or how, how do we want to pronounce this acronym? Yahtzee. Yahtzee. I think it's pronounced Yahtzee. Yahtzee. Yeah. Which sounds like Jesse's favorite game. Oh, Yahtzee. I thought that was risk. <laughs> <laughs> but this this union represents like over 60,000 film and television crew workers. And back on October 16th, the union had reached a tentative agreement with you know Hollywood producers and came the day before they were supposed to go on their first ever national strike. There were a lot of people that came together for the vote. I mean, it was an incredibly high turnout. Almost 90% of the union members showed up and 99% of the voting members authorized a strike. And so there was a, a lot of momentum and a lot of like a big show of strength within the union. And there were a lot of stories like elevated on social media by the union about a lot of the tragic and like horrible consequences for workers being exploited on sets. So, I mean, most of these workers are like below the line crew. So that's like the designers and the makeup artists and the camera operators. A lot of these stories talked about lunch breaks being blown through, just like we saw in modern times. And, you know, working multiple like 15 plus hour days, no bathroom breaks. You know, a lot of the things that we've actually been discussing in the last few episodes. The idea that, you know, it's not really that helpful to, you know, slap a fine on a studio for blowing through a lunch break when they have multi-million dollar budgets. It's cheaper for them to pay the fine than it is for them to adjust their schedule to allow for lunch breaks. And bathroom breaks. Yeah, because the penalties are so small, they're not meant to actually be what we think of as a penalty, which is to discourage Mm -hmm. that behavior. It's not a deterrent. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, a lot of this is different from anything that could have been going on, really, you know, back in modern times in that period, because a lot of the problems are related to new media or streaming services and how they're getting these exemptions or they're not being held to the same standard as the studios and like the old media way of doing things. Right. That's been one of the major issues is that you know, new media doesn't have the same health plans and pension plans that you would get from the old media type studio work. And being held to those different standards allows them to exploit workers even more. And I think that's really not something we that most viewers or consumers of these kinds of movies and programs think about. On screen, you're watching the actors, and what's talked about are famous actors and directors and how much they make per film and 
what you don't think about is the 99% of everything else that goes into the making of that media, which is like all of these below the line workers who really make everything happen. Right, they make everything run. It's impossible to make films without below the line workers. Right, as much as we all focus on the celebrity actors and directors, I think another thing when talking about new media that we focus on is just how we have so much more content to consume and how people have decision fatigue and we think about audiences and the kind of incredible money that Amazon and Netflix are making right with with their film productions and with you know these streaming services and we're not really thinking of you know the relentless push that's being put onto the below the line workers who you have to make up all that time and have to like churn out this content. This is all the more relevant to the news about the fatal shooting of the prop gun on the rest set, like Alec Baldwin shooting the prop gun and killing the director of photography. Helena Hutchins. What happened there is that they brought in non-union people to work props, right? Exactly. So what happened was that the night before the sh- the shooting, uh, the union members walked off the set over safety concerns. Right. And then they brought in workers the next day who didn't have the experience and as much you know, safety training and who even acknowledged that they weren't sure if they were ready, you know, to be like the armor for the film. Helena Hutchins was union, but she stayed. Right. And then, you know, she died and the director himself, Joel Souza, was shot in the shoulder as well. It's really a tragedy. I mean, I'm no, like, Alec Baldwin apologist, but I can't imagine what he must be going through right now. You know, that's, um, like, how do you go back to the set? How do you go back to work after that? I don't know. Yeah, I can't imagine what the future of rest of the film they were shooting is going to work out. (laughs) Well, I I don't even know if they'll finish it, right? He was also a producer on the film. So, you know, Mm. he's responsible. He's on set. I'm interested to see what happens and what kind of consequences he faces for, like, the different roles that he played in this. It's complicated, right? Because he's continuing to work in an environment where union workers walked off set. But it's also, it's not his fault that the prop gun was loaded. You know, and, and it's so beyond what you would ever consider the consequences of that walk off to be, right? It's so beyond any expectation. And I think, I don't think he's going to face consequences because I don't think that he, it's, I think it's just a tragedy. The handling of firearms on set has to follow really strict rules. And if those rules weren't being followed, the angle that you're holding it, even if there are blanks, like it can still be a projectile that's dangerous to people, like as we've seen, right? And if, so if those guidelines weren't being followed because people didn't know or people were too tired or people just didn't care and were like, I do this all the time, right? let's bend the rules to get the better shot or the easier shot. I think it will be interesting to see what actually does come from this. And maybe it will be a catalyst to more change on the union side, just like Lawrence Jones's death in Harlan County, USA. Something that really like draws attention and snaps action into place. And like in 2014, there was a death of a camera assistant on train tracks shooting a movie. And that director like went to jail and producers had like probation and community service. So like reckless behavior that results in death is not unprecedented. I mean, different state, different time, different circumstances, but they were filming on a train track where they didn't have a permit to be operating or to be shooting on that track. And it's the entire sort of workplace environment that you're discussing, Jesse, that's the problem. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And it reminds me of like some of the, the stuff that's coming out now about like the Batwoman set. I don't know if you guys have been following this. No. With uh, Ruby Rose. No. No. Who is also kind of like Alec Baldwin, notoriously horrible to work with, like just a, a like a pill, really. And only people only ever complain about working with her. Okay. Right? Um, she she played Batwoman for one season, 
uh, in the CW show Bad Woman. And then she left. And everyone was talking about how she was fired because she was so hard to work with. Mm. Um, and she just came out and she said, well, actually, there was uh, a lot of safety issues on set. Now there's this you know, controversy over whether she was fired for being hard to work with or whether she left because of workplace conditions. But basically, she came out and she itemized all of the accidents that happened on the CW show. Like someone was left quadriplegic. <gasps> Someone's face was ripped off. What? Yeah. And it's all these things. Oh my God. Yeah. Someone's face was ripped off? Well, so this is what she said. This I'm going to quote her. Ruby Rose said there was a situation in which a crew member's whole body was burned. Mm. Quote, we were given no therapy after witnessing his skin fall off his face. <gasps> and then we're told we had to do a sex scene without a minute to process. Oh. A woman was left quadriplegic, Rose wrote, and they tried to blame it on her being on her phone. And uh, because this woman was hit in the head by a lowering boom lift and she was left paralyzed. Oh Oh my God. And this is happening on Batwoman. Like who, this is like a small low budget CW show. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think my, my take on this is Ruby Rose was probably fired for being difficult to work with, but it was also an incredibly unsafe work environment. And both are probably true. Um, but that doesn't negate the unsafe work environment. And that's not necessarily any one person's fault, but it sounds like, again, a series of failures um, that leads to this, these terrible tragedies happening. In the case of the CW, it seems like they have... A history of this and it's egregious i was really thinking of of that and the issue of union workers walking off and being replaced with non-union workers uh mm-hmm. it seems like the batwoman stuff was happening because the cw was trying to rush the show to get it done before covid lockdowns so they're rushing right and just this complete disregard for the safety of crew members and i think it's actually probably more common than is talked about Right. I mean, people don't really talk about crew members in Hollywood. I mean, I think there are people who may not even have known about the, you know, the deal that Yahtzee was making and and the strike, the vote to strike. And it was only because now Alec Baldwin's name is being thrown into it. And there was like the tragic death of Lena Hutchins. And now people are talking a little bit more about what just happened Mm -hmm. a week ago. There's a really good uh, TikTok video, Annie, that you shared with us. It's a good explainer of what's going on. Maybe we can include that in the show notes. Yeah. Or share it share it on Instagram. I mean, my Instagram for the last month has been nothing but people resharing and posting from the Yahtzee Stories Instagram account. But then I've had conversations with people, you know, just in the last day after the news broke about what happened on the rest set and people had no idea that this has been going on yeah the content that people are seeing it's totally different <laughs> it's terrible when it's a tragedy that kind of elevates a, a discussion to a broader audience but i mean it's kind of typical it's something that we saw in the movies we were discussing in this series too my instagram feed is all cats and mukbangs so well i really enjoyed this theme <laughs> <laughs> Did Annie. you just say cats and mukbangs? <laughs> yeah. You know, our mom listens to the show. She doesn't know what a mukbang is. <laughs> it's people eating. <laughs> just people eating food. I'm talking to the camera. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a good trio also. It really covered the span of labor history in the United States yeah. and showed how the nature of work and labor protections have changed in the past hundred years or more. Yeah. But also really highlighted how lucky we are mm-hmm. as workers today to not have to deal with mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that people have been dealing from most of history. But um, as we can see from this discussion about Yahtzee, there are still like a lot of the same problems. Not having a reasonable work day, work week, yeah. and lack of worker protection that can result in death. Something that I liked about the movies we picked for our series were that we had a documentary, but we also had comedies. That was a really great way to talk about 
a lot of these issues, but it it's hard that it's you know a sobering reminder. But now when we're having this free reeling conversation, we're really talking about the everyday and extreme tragedies that come of not having labor protections. If this had just been a Harlan County strike and there hadn't been publicity, there hasn't, hadn't been a fight against their rate increase, there hadn't been a fight against their stock, Duke Power wouldn't have given a damn about any of the pressure down here because all we had was their coal and we never had shut off enough of that to hurt their stockpiles up until the end. And the same thing with Lawrence. They never would have cared if Lawrence Jones died in Harlan. It would have been a two-inch paragraph from the Harlan Daily Enterprise and, and Carl Horn wouldn't have given a, a goddamn about it. And so I don't think a strike is won by any one thing. It was won by a lot of different people in a lot of different ways fighting together and playing different roles. So I have a question. What was your runner-up choice for your episode, right? If you hadn't done Office Space, Harlan County, USA, what would you have done? Because I think we struggled at first because there's so many movies that fall into these themes to choose from. Maybe Norma Ray mm. as a classic. I feel like we never talked about that in any of the three episodes, but when people think of you know labor movies about labor movements, yeah. I think a lot of people think of Norma Ray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would have been a good one. What about Nine to Five? Yes, Nine to Five. Nine to right. Five was one of our right. That was that was one of our recommendations. We mentioned we didn't discuss. That was Jesse's recommendation in the Office Space episode. Because you thought that Dabney Coleman was Gene Hackman. <laughs> I mean, still, it could be. I don't know. You could have switched those names and I would have no idea. They look identical. But yeah, would 9 to 5 have been your pick, Frankie? I would have picked The Apartment ah. from 1960 with uh, Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. Because it's one of my all-time All favorites. All-time, but... like, best romantic comedies. It's so good. Yes, I love that yeah. movie. It's so good. But um, but it's still, it's so dark, right? It's, it's kind of a rom-com, but it's... Anyway, so I didn't end up choosing it because I thought its themes are too similar to Office Space. Right, it's oh, about alienation yeah. and workplace. and We should have talked about, like, the apartment that shot... That, like, iconic shot of the actual space of the office with all of the desks yeah, and, like, that's fluorescent right, lights yeah. and everything. And just, mm-hmm, what yeah. is it, like, a crane shot or, like, a tracking shot moving through that? Oh, man, we totally, yeah. that's that's an iconic office space. So good. We should have talked about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think also the apartment influenced office space. Like, I wouldn't be surprised because there's similar dynamics, right, between the regular, like, office worker Right, Jack Lemmon, then the boss, and then the love interest, right? And and the dynamics there. They're echoes of that in Office Space. But I love The Apartment so much. It's such a great movie. Maybe we'll do it another yeah, time. I would love time. to do an episode <laughs> on The Apartment. Oh, so good. <laughs> or, like, we could have done Playtime, right? The the French movie, Jacques Tati. That would have been interesting as well. But a similar idea of, you know, de-individualization and alienation in The Office. <laughs> Like, all three of these kind of do the same. Yeah. Desk set with Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. Yeah. So good. Yeah. That'd be a good one. Well, that's good. Well, our next labor series. Whatever it is, I didn't do it. Norma, you've got the biggest mouth in this mill. Give us a longer break. Give us more smoking time. Give us a Kotex pad machine. Do it, now shut up. Okay, so should we talk about, answer some listener questions? Yeah, let's do it. Caitlin from Maryland writes in, and she has a three-part three part commentary. First one is, how did Frankie first get into Charlie Chaplin? Was she just the most hipster child to ever live? <laughs> it's a little bit, a little bit sassy. <laughs> But also, thank you for your question. <laughs> um, how did I first get... I don't know. I think I probably saw like a Chaplin movie on TCM in the middle of the night. I feel like that's how I found most things I like. It's like yeah. cable at midnight, you know, just something was on. Um, but I don't really have like a, a clear answer to that. Do you remember the first Charlie Chaplin film you saw? I think it was probably The Kid. Oh. I think it was The Kid. Yeah. How can you not 
want to see all of his other movies after seeing the kid. It just stays with you. So I think it was the kid. And you were a kid. Um, How adorable. You were like, this is about me. <laughs> I, I, I could be in this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I think, yeah, and the kid especially, it's so pure, right? And we talked in our episode on Modern Times about some of the problematics of Charlie Chaplin, but the kid itself, just as a film, is so touching. And there's something about the sentimentality of that that doesn't feel saccharine, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? It just feels very authentic, and his face is so expressive, right? Like, there's that moment where he bends down, he holds the kid, mm-hmm. and it, it just shows his face, and he's you can see, like, there are tears in his eyes, and just, oh, oh, so good. Yeah, so that's that's where I started. Was I the most hipster child ever? Probably. Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Although we will, for Halloween, we will post in social media some photos of us in, like, pop culture Halloween costumes, and I will include the one of me as Chaplin, and you can tell me if I'm hipster or a loser, because I think it's... <laughs> I think it's more lame than hipster. <laughs> well, I thought you were super cool. So. <laughs> I still think, I mean, that was a good costume when I went as Chaplin. Oh, like, yeah. Really I wish good. I could redo it now, like as an adult with more resources, but that was a good one. I mean, you had the hat, you had the cane. That cane was mm-hmm. like really magical. I had the cane. I wore Jesse's Doc Martens from high school. (laughs) (laughs) So they're like two sizes too big. It was perfect. (laughs) Okay, part two. How do you think Charlie Chaplin would view modern technology, especially social media, in terms of dehumanization? I have a great thought on this. Um, So I'm just going to jump in and and like, I don't want to, I don't want to like talk too much, chatter too much, but I actually was just thinking about this because I rewatched um, something that in the context of talk or conversation on Charlie Chaplin, I was making a lot of connections uh, in my mind when I rewatched Bo Burnham's Inside, which I've definitely talked about on this pod before because I'm a big fan. I think that he, Chaplin would have the same takes as Bo Burnham. <laughs> oh my <laughs> <in> gosh. <inside. laughs> I really do. I think he would agree with his like with his conclusions on it, right? Because um, Chaplin also had a complicated relationship with technology, right? He needed it to um, have his career, right, to be successful. But ultimately, he saw it as a tool of dehumanization. And I, I think Bo Burnham talks a lot about that same conundrum, but in contemporary times, especially social media. The idea that you're constantly performing who you are on social media. I think that there's a shared empathy and kindness and generosity toward people who find themselves in that social media loop, right? Like the criticism is of the technology and the corporations that peddle it, right? Not of the individuals. So I think that Chaplin would would feel the same. I think he would be anti-social media, but he would probably still use it to a degree for his career just like he did back then. But um, I think he'd be very critical, especially of its influence and impact on children, right? Because that was something he was also very concerned about. Yeah, I think he would also hate Jeffrey Bezos, <laughs> just like Bo Burnham. I think he would hate Mark Zuckerberg. I think he would be very outspoken, you know, uh, against these tech giants as well. Do you think he would have like a Chris Dahlia scandal? type scandal of like messaging underage girls on Instagram. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I'm not saying Poe Burnham is Charlie Chaplin, but I see so many similarities. Like, I see, I agree. I, I think that's, that's really astute. I hadn't thought of that, especially inside, I think would be yeah. incredibly relevant. Well, there are similarities in terms of like trying to use comedy to reflect contemporary concerns and issues among normal people. Like the, the question of like, is this a drama or is it a comedy, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like Modern Times has those moments where it's really more dramatic than it is funny. And I think this explicit concern with technology and the individual, I see a lot of that. And also just on a basic level, Bo Burnham, you know, doing all of the mm-hmm. production yep. um, and writing on his special. I just really got some 
some postmodern Chaplin vibes when I rewatched it. Yeah. I've been listening. Those songs are on my fall playlist. So yeah, just listening to a lot of those lately, too. They're amazing. Phoebe Bridger is, is like covering some of his songs mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. inside. So she released that funny feeling. Yeah. I also heard that uh, John Mulaney is like making bitter jokes about Bo Burnham in his new special or his new stand up. I think the, the crowd has spoken. So. Right. You are not it right now. <laughs> <sighs> Did Caitlin have any more questions for us? She leaves us with a comment. She says, from my experience going to college in Appalachia, Appalachia, it was drilled into me that the correct pronunciation is with latch in the middle, like I threw an Appalachia. <laughs> so Frankie, Frankie wins. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll go with Appalachia. We have multiple readers, or sorry, we had multiple listeners who commented Um, Too many to name, but (laughs) multiple commented that Ron Livingston is obviously Burger from Sex and the City. Wrong. (laughs) Well, that's what everyone was saying about you, Frankie. Everyone says you're you're wrong. Wrong. (laughs) Yeah, Frankie, you don't have to embarrass yourself and keep calling yourself wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I can't. Don't hate me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> He's Nixon from Band of Brothers. Um, well, then why don't you name one quote that anybody knows that Nixon has said? I'm sorry. I what? can't. Don't hate me. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even say that, by the way. Frankie he writes, writes a post-it it. note. Exactly. <laughs> Unforgettable. Read it and weep, my friends. I'm sorry I can't. Don't hate me. The motherfucker's concise. Next comment is from Twitter user Spicy Biscuit. <laughs> How did you just you say, say Spicy Biscuit? Biscuit? Is that Bugsby? Bugsley? Do you need medical attention? Biscuit. As opposed to Limp Biscuit. <laughs> Spicy Biscuit. <laughs> okay. I'd like you guys to do an in-depth cinematic review of Hocus Pocus, you know, for Halloween. Oh, man. The timing just didn't work out for us to do a Halloween-themed series maybe next year. So keep keep listening. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in this time next year. <laughs> for our- I do love Hocus Pocus, though. I love Hocus Pocus. And if we could do sisters' costumes, yes. I think we would Okay, but which ones oh. would we be? Who would we be? Who's who? Okay, I know this. Jesse is um, Bette Midler. Yes, agreed, hundred percent. Okay, yes, and <laughs> easy. I feel like I feel like I'm Sarah Jessica Parker because I'm like you're the Samantha, the most bimbo of the three of us. And I feel like Annie would be the third one, who's the funniest one. Is that Kathy Najimy? Is that her? Because I would be honored. Kathy, yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? Najimy? Najimy? I don't know. But I would be honored. Yeah, I feel like that's it. I feel like that's it. You know what? That makes me really happy because I feel like you guys always treat me like I'm the the clown. So. (laughs) They're all all the clowns. They're all similar in that, like, slightly drunk seeming. (laughs) (laughs) I I would be happy to be any one of those three iconic. Yeah, seriously. Wow strong female characters incredible all right (laughs) we were asked to do an in-depth review of hocus pocus are we actually gonna do that no no not not anytime soon okay i mean do we have hot takes honestly i think hocus pocus is overrated wow i'll edit that out okay good (laughs) please do i remember the first time i saw it i didn't really know anything about madonna and the mom's Halloween costume is as Madonna with her yeah. pasties. And I did not understand what those were. <laughs> and that was the first time I ever saw this. <laughs> Therefore, it stands to reason, does it not, sisters dear, that we must find the book, brew the potion, and suck the lives out of the children of Salem before sunrise? Otherwise, it's curtains. We evaporate. We cease to exist. Dost thou come 
they hadn't. Well, you explained it beautifully, Winnie. The way you sort of started out with the adventure part, and then you sort of slowly Explain went what? Come! We fly! Well, do we want to segue into a tenant question or into our favorite Hall- Halloween movies? So the tenant question is, multiple people have requested that we do an episode on tenant. Yeah. And I find that, I think it's going to be unlikely that that happens because we all agree that the movie is garbage. So I think that it would be like not a very productive conversation. See, I don't think it's garbage. I feel like I could have a discussion about it. I could entertain people's opinions that they like it. (laughs) I would like, I think we could do it if I had more distance from it, you know, like revisiting it. Maybe I'll like it better in hindsight, but um, I also did not like Interstellar, and I think I'm just off Nolan. Yeah. I think I'm just off Christopher Nolan, to be honest. So, and this is not to like mock anyone who suggested it because they actually like the movie. That's great. I just don't think we would have a very exciting conversation about it anytime soon. Fair enough. Okay. If we're going to wait until next year to do a, a Halloween series, let's just say go around and throw around some of our favorite Halloween movies. Rocky Horror. Rocky Horror. I was going to say that. (laughs) Yeah. I I love Rocky Horror. Me too. (laughs) So funny. (laughs) Practical Magic, I think, is my number one, though. That's my number one. Really? 100%. Okay. I I like Beetlejuice. Oh, Beetlejuice. I love Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice is so good. I love the original Halloween. I think it's it's a masterpiece, actually. I rewatched it last Halloween. I'll probably rewatch it again this time. But um, I think it's really just really well done. It's the sequels that aren't good. But the, the first one is, I think, hmm. maybe a perfect Halloween movie. I've actually never seen it. So. Me neither. You should watch it. It's really good. The score is amazing. The, the camera work is really great. It originated a lot of the Halloween movie tropes, right? And so it's feels very, like, unself-aware of those tropes. You know what I mean? Like, so Jamie Lee Curtis plays what we would now call, like, a teen scream queen, right? And that trope is now, like, in Friday the 13th series and Nightmare on Elm Street and everything and Scream. Um, but this movie kind of originated that idea. So it's it's not really a trope yet. I, I I recommend watching it. It's really good. And there's a lot of artistic merit in, in the way it's filmed. So I'm surprised, Frankie, you haven't said Interview with a Vampire. I don't think of that as a Halloween movie. That's an all-year movie. What makes it something a Halloween movie? Like, Beetlejuice is not set at Halloween, right? Right, but I think it's the feeling. Yeah. yeah. But Hocus Pocus set at Halloween. So does, like, Ghostbusters count? Could. I think so. What about, like, what we do in the shadows? Yeah. It could, yeah. I think it's just a sense of, like, does it feel like a summer movie? Is it something that you really want to watch around Halloween time? Uh, Edward Scissorhands. Yes. Yeah, that's a really good example. Oh, that's a good one. I think anything Tim Burton. Yeah, so, like, Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. Is that a Christmas movie? I think of it as both, but probably firstly a Halloween movie. I think it's first a Christmas movie, then secondarily. Wow. <laughs> That's cool. I mean, I... Because I, it's... But it's set in Halloween... Town. Right? Town. But it's about Christmas. Yeah. What about those Halloween say- town movies? Do you remember those? Those were great. Those were, so good. Those were great. Did you know that the two main characters, uh, actors in that movie, like Kimberly Brown or what was Yeah, it was like Kimberly and... She was a Disney Channel original yes, movie star. Really was. Kimberly J. Brown. Kimberly J. Brown. She's but... from Gaithersburg, ah, Maryland. Interesting. From Appalachia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Gaithersburg. <laughs> Nothing. She, so she's the star. She was the star of uh, the Halloween Town movies. She is now dating all these years later the guy who played cal in halloween town 2 <gasps> what yes so she calabar's revenge so she played marnie <laughs> in the halloween town franchise okay oh my goodness she and the guy who played cal and uh 
Calabar's Revenge, Halloween Town 2, <laughs> reconnected, like, just a few years ago. They, they were not in touch for, like, over 10 years. Now they have, like, a TikTok account together, and they fell in love. Oh, my. What? I don't know what any God. of this means. <laughs> I don't know what any of this is. This is a <laughs> very, very, very micro-generationally relevant But mind-blowing breaking news. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> Yeah, here, Annie, I'll send yeah, it. I'll send, send, me, it send me that TikTok. Like, what? That's like their own sequel. That's so nice. Makes me very happy. But yeah, I definitely think of those movies too. I would not rewatch them now as an adult, but as a no. kid. So, Jesse. The hold that they had on it us. It was so amazing. good. And there, I don't know how many there were, but there were a number of them. And Kimberly J. Brown's grandmother is a witch, played by Debbie Reynolds. Yep. And there's like mm-hmm. a, a skeleton who drives a cab around. And those are most of the things that I remember. <laughs> I couldn't really tell you yeah. much more than that. They were great. They were in those Disney movies. What other Halloween movies? D- does The Craft count? No. It could, yeah. Oh, no? Jesse says no. no. I think it's reductionist to say that anything that involves a witch <laughs> is, is automatically Halloween. No. What other time of the year are witches relevant? What time of year are witches not relevant? When are they most relevant? <laughs> Something tells me it's right now. It's their it's their moment. <laughs> Tis the season. Yeah. Like death becomes her. Right? You could watch that any time of year, mm-hmm. but it's especially fun to watch it around now. <laughs> yeah. Is it? Has that movie made yeah. a comeback? I think it has because I think Netflix got it back out. Yeah. Do I live under a rock? What is this? <laughs> Oh, guys, Adam's Family. Adam's Family. How did we forget that? And Casper. Okay, I feel like the 90s had the best Halloween movies. That It was like a whole thing. Yeah. I feel like Halloween movies now are not as good. Yeah, I can't think of anything except for Hubie Halloween, and that is not really... That's not a, mo- a real movie. Did you guys watch it, though? No. Did you watch no. it? Yeah, I, well, I tried. <laughs> so here's the thing. Here's Annie the thing. loved it. I, I, I laughed. <laughs> At Huey Halloween. Let it be known <laughs> that I laughed at Huey Halloween. <laughs> I forgot one of my favorite movies to watch around this time of year. It's definitely not a Halloween specific movie, but it's a movie that the atmosphere, it just, I just like watching it around this time. That's The Shining. Well, I think it's really interesting that, I mean, Frankie's the only one who's actually brought up like horror films. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I didn't even mention, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I also, you know, think about this time of year. You do? I, I never like, think about that movie. Amityville Horror. Oh, I love that or, movie. Or, <laughs> like, Children of the Corn. Yeah. The Hills like, Have All eyes. that stuff that I yeah. mean, uh, No. Child's Play, the Chucky doll stuff. I remember on Halloween when I was younger seeing Saw. And being like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, mm-hmm. I guess I'm not going to be someone who likes horror movies. This is not for me. <laughs> what, Annie, were you like 10? <laughs> and I, I let you watch it? <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. You put it on. <laughs> you were like, you've never seen Saw? How have you never seen Saw? <laughs> the constant refrain of being the youngest of this group was always hearing, how have you never seen this movie that you probably shouldn't see for another five to ten years? <laughs> I think that brings us to uh, recent watches. Wait, 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 wait. One more, one um, more, one more. Last think, Halloween, okay. the three of us watched a movie that was so good that one day we should do an episode on it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Called Haosu. Yep. And it's like a Japanese like horror kind of so acid good. trip movie that is excellent. And I highly, highly recommend if you're looking for something to watch this Halloween. House. House. That's a great movie. So <laughs> Yeah, we found it because Bill Hader said it was one of his all-time favorite movies when he visited the Criterion Closet <laughs> and wore, wore the t-shirt, I think. That is a great movie if you're looking for something to watch this Halloween that maybe you haven't seen before. Excuse me, Laurie. Oh, Mr. Brackett, I'm sorry, Mr. Brackett. Oh, I didn't mean to startle you. That's all right. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? 
Yes, sir. Nice seeing you, sir. Okay, so I think that brings us to recent watches. Um, we all watched Squid Game. Us and, like, everyone else <laughs> on planet Earth. <laughs> millions and millions of other viewers of Squid Game. It's, it's like, the most, like, streamed Netflix thing ever, right? Yeah, that's, isn't, that's, isn't that that's what right? I've heard. It surpassed Bridgerton. So I'll just say that I watched this with our mother, and she <laughs> she guessed a major story twist yeah that is revealed in the final episode she she guessed it uh, like episode three and i argued with her so hard that (laughs) that there was no way that that was possible (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah well i thought that they gave like the way that they shot a lot of it any like inconsistency pointed to a a later reveal like i think that if you picked up on kind of just how they were shooting things and and specifically things that they would not show on camera then you were able to pick up on what was going to come which i thought was so funny because when i talked to our mom about squid game she told me that she guessed this thing and that jesse shut her down so hard (laughs) (laughs) and that she felt incredibly validated (laughs) (laughs) funny <laughs> so did we like it um i liked it i i don't know if i did so i felt like the only reason that i watched it was because i knew that everyone else in the world was watching it um and that it's not something that i would have sought out for myself i mean you know it's pretty violent and that's not yeah. really what i choose i tend to watch a lot I think there are a lot of like in- interesting conversations to be had about the material, like the the themes that they're trying to hit on. And I like that people around the world are watching like Korean film. I think that's awesome. Yeah, uh, that makes yeah. that makes me really happy because you know we've mentioned on the pod before, like that that's something that the three of us have gotten into, and a lot more people have gotten into, you know, in the last few years. And so, like that, it's great to see that. Like Korean film succeeding in such a massive way on an international level. But yeah, Frankie, I'm I'm dying to hear your thoughts. I think ultimately I didn't like it. I kind of feel you, Annie, on that, like where you're not quite sure if you liked it or not. Um, My feelings are that I thought it was incredibly entertaining. Like the set design was impeccable, like crazy. There are going to be so many Squid Game costumes this year at Halloween. The acting was pretty good. I thought, like, the main characters yeah, were compelling to follow. And, um, like, at no point did I think I, I'm going to stop watching this. Like, it propelled me through the whole show. And I really – that's hard to do for me. Like, I know you guys make fun of me that I don't really watch a lot of, <laughs> like, TV anymore or, like, Netflix shows because I just find them boring. And I was never really bored too much during Squid Game, um, even though it is nine hours. For me, that's hard, right? Like it takes takes a lot of um, momentum to keep me interested in these kinds of shows. But ultimately, my problem with it is the gratuitous violence. I went back and forth while watching the show because, it, it, you know, in the first half, I was trying to give the creators the benefit of the doubt that it's supposed to be a meta commentary on violence and capitalism and all this stuff. Yeah. Ultimately, though, in the by the conclusion, I really felt that it was over the top to be titillating, to be shocking, more like a Saw movie, right? To bring it back to what we were just talking about with Saw, than actually focusing more on the social commentary, which I also found to be pretty basic, you know? And I've also read that, you know, in South Korea... This show's being discussed in a very different way. Like, it's not as beloved because it's seen as more basic in its commentary. And that's because they have so many shows and movies over there that are talking about the same themes, like Parasite, are doing so in a more nuanced way. I mean, because this semester I'm teaching a class on the Holocaust, and I've been thinking a lot about use of graphic imagery in teaching, about, in teaching that class, right? And I really try not to use too much graphic imagery without really contextualizing it and talking about it. 
because I don't want it to be just something that is shocking for shock value, for shock's sake with my students. And I did feel like filmmakers can use violence to make meta commentaries on the nature of violence, especially the nature of violence in like capitalist systems. But to me, there are just too many instances where it went too far overboard, where it just felt like too much and it took away from, for me, the value of some of the commentary. Again, I am left wondering what is wrong with me that I did not feel like it was <laughs> super violent. But you watched this with our mother. You didn't you weren't sitting there being like No, I mean in terms of in terms of deaths, it's people being shot and it's people falling and like dying on impact, right? And then there's like some surgical scenes. I thought Oakja and the Many Saints of Newark were far more visceral and graphic and like deeply, deeply upsetting because they had unique ways of hurting people and they really didn't shy away from showing torture and violence. I think there was a lot of death and it was really shocking like how casual it happened, but I wouldn't say it's gratuitous, I don't know. Like, I didn't, it wasn't something I ever had to look away from. Well, I, th- I find that really interesting because, so I recently saw uh, Titan, which won the Palme d'Or mm-hmm. at Cannes this year. And it's about, like, a serial killer. But, and the, so there's a lot of violent murdering happening. But the actual, right. like, the most visceral and upsetting scenes for me were the fact she has to disguise herself as a boy there are scenes where she has to wrap her breasts and the sound of that it, it like the sounds of right. those scenes were so much more upsetting and hard to watch and and you see like the trauma and like the pain that she's going through and it's when she puts it on and takes it off right the scarring and and what's happening to her body like that to me was so much more upsetting than any of the murder scenes <laughs> i mean i i respect your feelings, Jesse. For me, it wasn't like the act of killing, but I felt that the camera really lingered on the corpses of the victims. Like it wasn't just falling. There were several times where they would show the cracked open skulls and the brains. The gratuitous for me shot of the piles of the victims. And it was just like, I understand that they're trying to show the depths and depravity of violence that's inherent in capitalism, right? I get that commentary. It's pretty on the nose. Like exactly what you're saying, Annie, it reminded me of what I really appreciate about Come and See, which we did an episode on, where what's really horrifying was the unseen for the viewer. I found I found squeaking to be very violent. I agree. <laughs> I, I definitely agree. There were a lot of times where I, I would look away. <laughs> yeah, I'm like shocked that Jesse's like, Nah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I don't think it was that, like, was it more violent than, like, an American Western? Was it more violent than Open Range or? Yes. Yes, it absolutely was. Yes. I think yes. it was. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think I that know. maybe because it's so dystopian. Right. That maybe. Maybe it's easier to dissociate like, from it. Dis- exactly. I think that it's much easier to dissociate. Yeah. Well, consider me dissociated. Oh, boy. (laughs) And, you know, I think it was simplistic, but I think it was also very visually entertaining. And it was just entertaining to see, you know, maybe I was reading and I wasn't watching. I don't know. It's possible. Another interesting aspect of Squid Games is the discussion about the different subtitle, like, translations and the dubbing and how a lot of nuance is lost depending on which thing you're watching, that there are like a lot of things in the original like Korean language script that don't come across to English speakers. Well, this wasn't only translated to English, right? It was translated to several languages. I don't know how many, but quite a few. And that it kind of quite accounts a few. It, that accounts for part of why it, it blew up so much, like in an yep. international way. But every translation is different. So I heard that the Netflix rushed the translations because they wanted them all available at once mm-hmm. when it went live, um, which clearly worked out for them because exactly right, Annie, like that's the reason it's so globally popular. Everyone could watch it, 
right? Well, not everyone, but many, many people could watch it available at the same time. But it means they rush the translations. So I'm surprised that Jesse doesn't think it's that violent. <laughs> and then you're, and then you know you're saying, oh, like shooting on Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which has less violence and blood <laughs> than <laughs> Squid Game. <laughs> but Squid Game doesn't have anybody being killed with a chainsaw. Is that the line for you? Because <laughs> the murders are so gentle. <laughs> mundane deaths right like or what what is well as an american machine guns from the side of a what (laughs) no way no fine i don't know i'm disturbed like i wouldn't okay so i'm not gonna say that it's not gratuitous it wasn't so much so that it would register as a criticism of the entire show it would be something i would caution somebody about when i'm recommending it to them but i wouldn't say this movie, this show wasn't that great because it was so gratuitously violent. It felt really simplistic. The violence is probably why everybody's watching. Uh, anything else good that you've watched, guys? Well, Jesse said that she saw Many Saints of Newark. Yeah. Which I also saw. I saw, I went and saw it in the theater, even though I know it's available to stream on HBO. I feel like that makes you the real hipster. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. I'm the hipster child. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, so I know that we have, you know, that there are mixed reviews of it, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really great. And, I mean, we've been looking forward to this and anticipating this for a while now, and we've talked about this on uh, previous Free Reeling episodes, just how excited we all were for this movie, because we're all big fans of The Sopranos. It was really great. I mean, the production is different. It looks and feels different from The Sopranos. You know, it's more like a Hollywood movie than like a TV show uh, look. And, you know, that takes a little bit of adjusting when you're watching it. But then I think it kind of adds that element of nostalgia, you know, that even in The Sopranos, they look back on this time as bigger, larger than life and better than it actually was. Mm -hmm. And so to have the production be like look and be of a higher quality than like kind of the grainy old stuff that we're used to when we watch The Sopranos. I think that was actually a really cool element. When I was watching it, my my partner was in the other room and he could hear it, but he couldn't see it. And he came in and he looked at the screen. And he was like, oh, is this Goodfellas? He could hear Michael Imperioli's voiceover and the way that it looked on screen and like jazzy nostalgia mm-hmm. feel at the beginning. Yeah. Very Goodfellas. And I thought that the casting was inspired. Yes. <laughs> Michael Gandolfini, who is James Gandolfini's son, plays a young Tony Soprano. And he was so good. So good. He was incredible. Incredible. Vera Farmiga and Billy Magnuson and Corey Stoll all cast as younger versions of characters we know from The Sopranos mm-hmm. show was just beautiful. Loved they it. were amazing. So they mm-hmm. they were so good. And there were like there was some there is some audience service going on, some fan service, but I didn't hate it. <laughs> It wasn't, I I, I didn't think it was a problem, but you know, they were great. And then the younger versions of like the Silvio and the Polly and those guys, sometimes those bordered on like impressions, (laughs) Mm. but that made me laugh, you know? Yeah. But also in the Sopranos, those characters also feel like impressions yes of monsters but you know (laughs) there they are and then over time they became real people so i feel like it kind of all fit into something that works for a fan maybe not for a mass audience but a sopranos fan would love the yeah you you're you're gonna find things that you're gonna really enjoy i mean the first scene with michael gandolfini playing tony soprano the first time you see him, I cried because it's him reunited with his father coming back from jail. Aww. And one of the very first things that he says is that he gives his dad a hug and says, I missed you, dad. And Aww. I just started crying. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, maybe the movie made me feel a lot of things. <laughs> and like, there was some, it was a little heavy handed in certain parts. I, I'm not saying it's a flawless movie, but it's definitely going to be full of nostalgia if you love The Sopranos. 
It's not just the gambling, it's everything. The, the cherry bombs at the YMCA, letting the air out of Mrs. Russo's tires. I apologize! You talk you. big about wanting to be on a football team in high school and you're smoking already? Oh! Just like the last two weeks, I went to the BFI, British Film Institute London Film Festival, and got to see some amazing movies. Uh, I mentioned already that I saw uh, To Ten, which won the Palme d'Or this year at Cannes. And I got to see uh, Jane Campion's new movie, uh, The Power of the Dog, which stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Jesse Plemons, and Kirsten Dunst. Going into both of those movies, I did not know the plot at all. I was, I was blown away. And it was very exciting. And I saw The Lost Daughter, which I've also mentioned on previous Free Greenland episodes as one of the movies I was most looking forward to coming out this year. And The Lost Daughter was directed by Maggie and written by Maggie Gyllenhaal. And it's an adaptation of an Elena Ferrante novel. And uh, stars Olivia Coleman. Olivia Coleman. <laughs> Olivia yes. Coleman. And she's she's so good. She's so, so good. Like she just does things with the character like I just didn't imagine and again blew me away. And it's definitely material that in someone else's hands would not be as good. I also saw The Gravedigger's Wife. Somalia will be submitting it to the Oscars as their nominee for Best Foreign Language Film. We don't know yet whether it will actually be selected for competition, but it was excellent. It was shot in Djibouti. And at the screening, I went to the writer and director and the star were there. And almost everyone in the audience was also Somali. And so it was really, really cool everyone kind of talking about Somali filmmaking and art and the future of it and how the director had a lot of trouble getting The Gravedigger's Wife made the way that he wanted it to be made because it's in the Somali language, but people wanted it to be done in French. When he arrived, he pulled from amateur actors in Djibouti who all spoke Somali, but none of them could read it. They'd all been taught to read French. And so he actually had to, and he didn't have time to translate his script. So his rehearsal, I mean, it turned into a lot of on-the-flying kind of improv dialogue within the film. Just, I mean, it was incredible. And he was adamant that it had to be in Somali language, not subtitled, because he wanted his mom to finally be able to watch a movie without subtitles. Oh. Yeah, very moving. The last movie that I wanted to talk about that I saw at the London Film Festival was my favorite of the whole thing, and that was Celine Siama's new movie, Petite Mama. <laughs> <laughs> and this was the best, and she was at the screening, but I showed up and I was in the second row with my friend, and neither of us knew she was going to be there, and then she walked onto the stage right before the movie came on and introduced it. And I just, my brain short-circuited. I was just so excited. <laughs> uh, because Celine Siama, we talked about her before. It was our very first episode of the podcast. It was her film, Porch of a Lady on Fire. And now she has Petite Mama out, which is heavily based on her own childhood. And like she even dresses the grandmother character in her own grandmother's clothes. Like It's an incredibly personal film um, about grief and childhood and you know mothers and daughters absolutely incredible and she was just as badass and inspiring and amazing as I could have ever like dreamed she would be yeah I mean I guess you guys don't really have anything to say to me about any of these things <laughs> we haven't seen them so we can do it's fine <laughs> You can cut this whole section, and it's fine. <laughs> like, whatever. Um, the Celine Siama one looks really good. It's short. It's not very long, like a little bit over an hour. It's like a pretty short film. Um, but it's it's very good. It's, it's a great autumn film, too. It's a movie about childhood, and she spoke at the screening about how all of her films, other than Portrait of a Lady on Fire, are about childhood or being like a, a teenager, that Portrait of Lady on Fire is actually like a deviation from what she usually writes and directs. And you know, she worked on like My Life as a Zucchini, and she worked on Tomboy and Girlhood, and 
now petite mama and she's back to that but it's the first time she's really incorporated her own story of childhood into a movie but she thinks that children make the best characters because they're observing the world and they're playing and so much of filmmaking is just that Mm, that's so nice yeah c'est quoi c'est mes trucs d'enfant elle avait tout gardé c'était pas la reine de l'orthographe so that was this week's Free Berlin episode, and I uh, hope everyone enjoyed my pick of the labor theme for our last series. But up next, Jesse is picking the theme for our next series. What do you got in store for us? So we're going to do something a little bit different. Mm. We're not going to do a deep dive into a single movie. We are going to talk about multiple movies or our favorite movies or movies of note from the cities in which we're currently living. And I'm going to go first. We're going to talk about some movies that are set in D.C., in the D.C. <laughs> area, Washington, D.C. And particularly, we are going to talk about Born Yesterday from 1950, National Treasure, <laughs> and the movie How Do You Know from 2010, <laughs> which is one of my least favorite movies of all time. <laughs> so it'll be a slightly different conversation, but I think it's, it's going to be interesting. Check that episode out in two weeks. Thanks for joining us today in our free reel and episode. Be sure to check out our show notes on our website, cinemasilopod.com. And follow us and engage with us in social media at Cinemasilopod on Twitter and Instagram. See you next time in the silo.